what's up, you guys? I'm Angel the Stranger, and welcome to my podcast, The Stranger Sessions. Just before we start, I want you guys to know that you have the freedoms to have your own opinions and convictions. They might be different from mine. That's totally okay. Um, I'm just here to share what I believe, what I've learned, and what I've found in the Bible and on my walk so far in Christ. Um, It would be cool if you could leave me a review on Apple Podcasts if you'd like to, or if you want to check out some of my posts, go ahead and head to my website at thestrangersessions.com. You can also contact me from my contact page on the same website. Um, I post here on this podcast every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Yeah, and otherwise live differently and enjoy another session. Hello guys, what's up? And welcome to my podcast, The Stranger Sessions. This is the first episode of season three, and I'm really excited about this episode. I've been excited since I wrote it down. I'm going to be reading from Crazy Love by Francis Chan today. We're going to be talking about the first chapter. I don't know if any of you have have read it. It's a pretty um, popular book, so I'm pretty sure there's probably several of you who have. Um, but that's okay. You could stay and see it from a different person's perspective. Or you could go turn something else on. I don't know. Uh, one thing I want to say before I start is that I have not read the entire book. So I don't know if I agree with like every single thing he's wrote, writ- written in this book. And also, I don't know anything about Francis Chan. Like, as of what he believes, like, today. I'm just reading from what he wrote in Crazy Love. Because I heard that he went and changed his beliefs or something. So I'm just going to be talking about what is written in this particular chapter Um, so yeah, uh, I've been trying to figure out how to know God. I've been seeking him, trying to figure out how could, I don't know, I've just been thinking about how do you actually learn to know God? How do you learn to know his heart and know who he is and what he's like. Because when you think of somebody like you know your best friend or something, you know them, you just see them in their person too. But as for God, he's just kind of like a big supernatural thing that's somewhere unreachable to me and untangible. And that's hard to be in a relationship with something like that. I don't know, it's kind of like as if I'm trying to be in a relationship with the sun. Like, I can see it kind of, but I can't look directly at it because I'll hurt my eyes. And sometimes it goes away, and sometimes it's there. Bless you, Dad. Bless you, sister. Everyone's sneezing. Don't mind all the background noises. I'm just a regular person in a regular house, in a regular state in the United States, recording a regular podcast episode. But, I don't know, I've just been trying to figure... Oh, bless you again. Um, I've just been trying to figure out, like, how could I know the Lord as somebody closer to me and I've been I was reading this book called Before You Meet Prince Charming I talked about it in my previous episode um and she was talking about how a lot of girls are seeking relationships with people um like like uh what kind of uh, like love relationships to fulfill that desire inside of us um that is placed there like as for us girls if you're a guy you might not know this but we like in the curse that we got after um I think my sister was talking about this I don't know if I have the verse for it but women are built with 
the desire to be married and the desire to be loved and protected. So we have that desire in us from like young, young age. Um, and many, many girls are trying to fulfill that desire be by having relationships with guys and that doesn't work out very great because they're because of many reasons and that's not what this episode is about but I was reading this book and she says the author says that we need to be that desire inside of us first needs to be filled up by the Lord as our Prince Charming first and I know Prince Charming that's kind of corny but it's really true like we need to first fill up that desire for, like, even for guys. All the desire inside of you, like, whether you're a guy or a girl, it needs to be filled up before anything else with the Lord, a relationship with Christ. And that's how we're going to learn to be content in life. Because if we try to fill up our desires with physical things and earthly things, first we won't fill be filled up and we're not going to be content even when we receive everything that we always dreamed of whether that be a boyfriend or girlfriend like they're not going to fill up that desire because they're not enough and so we're not going to be content with them even after we have them like if that's your biggest dream or, or like I know it sounds kind of crazy to have your biggest dream be your boyfriend or girlfriend but I feel like for a lot of teenagers all they really want is just a best friend, somebody who loves them with like to no end, somebody who cares, somebody who's there for them all the time. And honestly, that's Jesus first before anyone else. And if you have someone, a best friend like that, whether it's a best friend or actually like a dating relationship, that's good as long as it's like the Lord's will for you. Like that's not a bad thing. I'm just saying that we need to make sure that we are pursuing a relationship with Christ. So, I've been trying to figure out how I could, I don't know, in a weird spiritual sense, start dating God, like Jesus, like to get to know him better. Because like, you meet somebody, let's say you meet somebody and you are interested in them and you basically, over time, you tell them or show them that you're interested in them. And God has already done that to you. He's already told you he's interested in become, having a relationship with you. He's interested. Now it's your turn to tell him whether you are interested as well or not. And then you can begin your dating relationship, which with God, it's not dating. It's, but I'm trying to make this, you know, easier to understand. Um... And that's when you start to get to know him. That's when you start to pursue him because you're really interested in him. You know, you text your boyfriend maybe every day or your girlfriend every day. Or you just go on dates because you're interested in them. You want to know what they like to do. Like weird things about them. You just want to know. You just They just interest you. They're your favorite topic. You know, like that should be the same with Jesus. You want to know what he feels like about this. What he likes. What's pleasant to him. Like what... Um, you want him to be your most favorite topic. And so, anyway, that was not the point of this this episode. But you guys know how I ramble. If you're here at season three. Oh my goodness, thank you guys. <laughs> I, hope, I hope I've been a tool that God used in your life. Um, anyways, so... 
Um, the reason I told you all that was because I was telling you that I've been trying to pursue the Lord. And so I opened this book, Crazy Love, to understand God's heart a little better. And that's what the first chapter of the book is about. So that's what we're going to be, well, I'm going to be reading to you today. We're also going to be talking about it. So, I don't know if I'm going to read the preface or not, should I? No, I'm going to do the chapter one. Um, and I have some verses that I wrote down that I, God showed me yesterday at my Bible study. So, the first chapter one says is titled, Stop Praying. And that caught me by surprise. Because I'm like, wait a second. I thought we're supposed to like pray without ceasing. Which is true, but just just hear him out. Ready? What if I said, stop praying? What if I told you to stop talking at God for a while, but instead to take a long, hard look at him before you speak another word? Word, sorry. Solomon warned us not to rush into God's presence with words. That's what fools do. And often, that's what we do. Okay, just to... um you know, stop right there. That was like, whoa, to me, because I often end up rushing into God's presence with an abundance and multitude of words, like, that apparently, you know, we're not supposed to do that. We're a culture that relies on technology over community and a society in which spoken and written words are cheap, easy to come by, and excessive. Our culture says anything goes. Fear of God is almost unheard of. We are slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to become angry, which is the opposite of um, that verse. I don't know what the reference is, but it says we are supposed to be slow to speak, quick to, like, quick to listen, and slow to anger. I, I probably butchered that a bit, for, but anyway. The wise man comes to God without saying a word and stands in awe of him. It may seem a hopeless endeavor to gaze at an invisible God, but Romans 1.20 tells us that through creation we see his invisible qualities and divine nature. Let's begin this book by gazing at God in silence. What I want you to do right now is to go online and look at the awe factor video at www.crazylovebook.com to get a taste of the awe factor of our God. Seriously, go and do it. Um, I actually didn't do that. I just continued reading because my parents weren't home and I, I don't usually, like, I don't go online when my parents aren't home. So I was like, you know, I've already seen creation. I can just look outside and look at the tree and the sky, whatever. Anyway. And then he says, speechless, amazed, humbled. When I first saw those images, I had to worship. I didn't want to speak or to share it with anyone. I just wanted to sit quietly and admire the creator. It's wild to think that most of these galaxies have been discovered only in the past few years thanks to the Hubble telescope. Eh, I'm bad at reading. They've been in the universe for thousands of years without humans even knowing about them. Why would God create more than, that's a big number, 350 billion, or no, is that billion or million? Yeah, billion. Galaxies, and this is the conservative estimate that generations of people never saw or even knew existed. Do you think maybe it was to make us say, whoa, God is unfathomably big? Or perhaps God wanted us to see those pictures so that our response would be, who do I think I am? R.C. Sproul writes, men are never duly touched and impressed with the conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves 
with the majesty of God. So this entire chapter is about the majesty of God, the bigness of God. Like, this is God the Father. This is someone we do not even have, like, direct... Well, now we have direct access through Jesus, but without Jesus, we would not be able to be in his presence at all because of us and our, like, sin and flesh. Okay, switch gears with me for a minute and think about the detailed intricacy of the other side of creation. Did you know that a caterpillar has 220 separate and distinct muscles in its head? That's quite a few for a bug. The average elm tree has approximately 6 million leaves on it, and your own heart generates enough pressure as it pumps blood throughout your body that it could squirt blood up to 30 feet. I've never tried this and don't recommend it. Have you ever thought about the have you ever thought about how diverse and creative God is? He didn't have to make hundreds of different kinds of bananas, but he did. He didn't have to put 3000 different species of trees within one square mile in the Amazon jungle, but he did. God didn't have to create so many kinds of laughter. Think about the different sounds of your friends' laughs, wheezes, snorts, silent, loud, obnoxious. How about the way plants defy gravity by drawing water upward from the ground into their stems and veins? Or did you know that sp spiders produce three kinds of silk? When they build their webs, they create 60 feet of silk in one hour, simultaneously producing a special oil in their feet that prevents them from sticking to their own web. Most of us hate spiders, but 60 feet an hour deserves some respect. Coral plants are so sensitive that they can die if the water temperature varies by even 1 or 2 degrees. Okay, so he just goes on talking about how amazing creation is, how we just take for granted all this stuff. But I wanted to read to Ecclesiastes 5.2, which I came across the other day, um, that was talking still about like coming to the Lord humbly, quietly, you know, meekly. It says, um, be not rash with your mouth and let your heart not be hasty to utter anything before God, for God is in heaven and you upon the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. And I was like, wow, I pretty much never let my words be few. And that's crazy, like, that we need to come before God in a, like, you know, like that. So, I was like, okay, well, that's something new. And I always repeat myself when I pray. You know I'm not great at praying. That's why I don't pray on the podcast. A lot of podcasters do open up with prayer in the podcast. I open up with prayer before I start recording because I just feel like it's easier for all of you guys <laughs> not to have to hear me pray. So, um, yeah, I'm going to continue reading now. Oh, but I do have... Uh, oh, verse 7 also. For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there are also divers vanities, but fear the Lord. I, I'm reading from the King James Version, and so I'm kind of like changing the these and thous to use, and I'm not good at quick translating. So, I actually have some verses on, the, on my phone screenshotted, not as King James Version. Wait, let me find them. Right here. My phone is so dark. Oh, I'll get to that part. That part was, like, really good. Okay. I'm excited about this. Ready? We're going to continue reading now. I'm trying to figure out, because I have some 
verses here, and I wrote it down to tell me what they were, but now I don't remember. Okay, did you know that when you get goose goosebumps, the hair in your follicles is actually helping you stay warmer by trapping body heat? Yes, I knew that, but if you didn't. Or what about the simple fact that plants can take in carbon dioxide, which is harmful to us, and produce oxygen, which we need to survive? I'm sure you knew that, but have you ever marveled at it? And these same poison-swallowing, life-giving plants can from came from tiny seeds that were placed in the dirt. Some were watered, some weren't, but after a few days they poked through the soil out of, and out into the warm sunlight. Whatever God's reason for such diversity, creativity, and sophistication in the universe, on earth, and in our own bodies, the point of it is all for his glory. God's art speaks of himself, reflecting who he is and what he is like. Psalm 19, 1-4 The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Creation is amazing. If you just, like, focus on it for just a little bit. If you just look around, look at all the work of God's hands. Creation is really just awe-inspiring because many people have been deceived into the fact that and everything became everything. And I just read my notes yesterday. I was listening to a conference about that. And he, the guy talking was like, nothing cannot make everything. Because they say there was nothing. Nothing at all. Except for like some kind of little gas particles or something. I don't know. I don't look into evolution that, like, that deeply. But nothing cannot make everything. Imagine nothing. Zero. And then you just like don't know what happens to zero and suddenly there's like 350 billion galaxies in an earth that's perfectly made and is the only planet known to man that can sustain life at a perfect degrees and it's a perfect spot away from the sun if it was like one little I don't know how many distance I should use but like you know if it was not where it is right now like we would be dead because we'd be frozen or we would be too hot and we would just melt and like the ecosystem everywhere would not be the perfect place for man and it, it uh, yeah, blah, 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 blah. you just can't deny it you can't deny it. there's so much proof that God created the earth and that God is ruling the earth and that we will go home oh, and all this stuff anyway it's just amazing and continue reading. This is why we are called to worship him. His art, his handiwork, and his creation all echo the truth that he's glorious. There is no other like him. He is the king of kings, the beginning and the end, the one who was and is to come. No, the one who was and is and is to come. I know you've heard this before, but I don't want you to miss it. I sometimes struggle with how to properly respond to God's magnitude in a world bent on ignoring or merely tolerating him. But know this, God will not be tolerated. He instructs us to worship and fear him. Go back and reread the last two paragraphs. Go to the web. I'm not going to do that, but anyway. Um, I have a psalm for this. Psalm 89. Four, no, seven. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. 
We're to fear him. We're to be in fear of God. He's the only thing we should fear is God. And not like a fear like, ah, I'm so scared. But more like, whoa. Like fear, the word fear is kind of just be in like reverence to him. Understand how powerful he is and respecting him. That's kind of the fear I believe that the word means. Okay. There is an epidemic of spiritual amnesia going around and none of us is immune. No matter how many fascinating details we learn about God's creation, no matter how many pictures we see of his galaxies, and no matter how many sunsets we watch, we still forget. Most of us know that we are supposed to love and fear God, that we are supposed to read our Bibles and pray so that we can know him better, that we are supposed to worship him with our lives, but actually living it out is challenging. It confuses us when loving God is hard. Shouldn't it be easy to love a God so wonderful? When we love God because we feel we should love Him instead of genuinely loving out of our true selves, we have forgotten who God really is. Our amnesia is flaring up again. It may sound unchristian to say that on some mornings I don't feel like loving God or I just forget to, but I do. In our world, we... In our world, where hundreds of things distract us from God, we have to intentionally and consistently remind ourselves of Him. I recently attended my high school reunion. People kept coming up and to me, coming up to me, saying, "She's your wife." They were amazed. I guess that a woman so beautiful would marry someone like me. Wait, they were amazed. I guess that a woman so beautiful would marry someone like me. It happened enough times that I took a good look at a photograph of two of us. I too was taken aback. It is astonishing that my wife chooses to be with me, and not just because she's beautiful. I was reminded of the fullness of what I have been given in my wife. We need the same sort of reminders about God's goodness. We are programmed to focus on what we don't have, bombarded multiple times throughout the day with what we need to buy that will make us feel happier or better or more at peace. This dissatisfaction transfers over to our thinking about God. We forget that we already have everything we need in Him because we don't often think about the reality of who God is. We quickly forget that He is worthy to be worshipped and loved. We are to fear Him. A.W. Tozer writes, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure and base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God Himself, and the most portentous fact about any man is not what he has he at a given time may say or do but what he is in in deep ah but what he is in his deep heart con conceives god to be like this is why okay hold on first of all i have spring allergies because yeah so i might sound awesome today but anyway this is why I don't write down my entire podcast episode and just read it to you because I'm terrible at reading out loud. I really am. I always trip over words. I mispronounce them. I don't even know how to read this portentous fact. I don't even know what that means. A.W. Tozer is just a little too deep for me. I've read The Pursuit of God. Ooh, I don't even remember what it says because it's so hard to understand. But anyway, this that's how you guys know that I'm just actually talking out of my brain and not out of my book. Or my, like, writing because I trip over my words. I even trip over wor my words when I talk. See, I just did. I just did. I'm not good at talking or reading. Anyway. If the gravest question before us really is what God himself is like, how do we learn to know him? 
which is exactly the question I've been asking myself lately. Continuation. We have seen how he is the creator of both the magnitude of the galaxies and the complexity of caterpillars. But what is he like? What are his char characteristics? What are his defining attributes? How are we to fear him? To speak to him? Don't check out here. We need to be reminded of this stuff. It is both basic and crucial. God is holy. A lot of people say that whatever you believe about God is fine, so long as you are sincere. But that is comparable to dis describing your friend in one instance as a 300-pound sumo wrestler and in another as a 5'2", 90-pound gymnast. No matter how sincere you are in your explanations, both descriptions of your friend simply cannot be true. The preposterous part about our doing this to God is that he already has a name, an identity. We don't get to, we don't get to decide who God is. God said to Moses, I am who I am, Exodus 3.14. We don't change that. To say that God is holy is to say that he is set apart, distinct from us. And because of his set-apartness, there is no way we can ever fathom all of who he is. To the Jews, saying something three times demonstrated its perfection, so to call God holy, 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 is to say that he is perfectly set apart with nothing and no one to compare himself to. That is what it means to be holy. Many spirit-filled authors have exhausted the thesaurus in order to describe God with the glory he deserves. His perfect holiness, by definition, assures us that our words can't contain him. Isn't it a comfort to worship a God we cannot exaggerate? God is eternal. Most of us would probably agree that, with that statement. But have you ever seriously meditated on what it means? Each of us had a beginning. Everything in existence began on a particular day at a specific time. Okay, so the other day... I was just doing my chores, cleaning the room, whatever. Oh my goodness, bless you to my entire family. They're like sneezing out there. Anyway, so spring allergies, I told you. Just for emphasis. I'm just kidding. Okay, so I was thinking about it the other day. I was like, I don't remember what order I went in. It was like, you know, I just thought, I just play with these thoughts sometimes. My past, my youth pastor says that if something is truly real, like, how about the floor I'm sitting on right now? I sit on the floor when I do the podcast, but how about the floor I'm sitting on right now? Okay, so the floor is there. It's there. I can feel it. You know, it's, I can see it. I can, I guess I could taste it if I wanted to, but what if I know it's there, but I can just check to make sure it's there again, like, because it will still be there because it is. But what if I was just imagining the floor was there? I don't know how I would be sitting on the floor if the floor wasn't there, but let's just say I was imagining it and I reached out to touch it to see if it was there. It wouldn't be there. What I'm saying is that if something is truly real and true and there like God, you are allowed to question the fact that if he is there, you are allowed to reach out and touch in a sense to figure out just to make sure because he will be there. It's okay to feed, like reach out and just be like, oh, yep, 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 he's he's there. You know, he's real. He's there. It's okay to do that. And so I was just thinking about like, what if God wasn't real? What if God wasn't real and we're just here out of some kind of sense state? I don't know why we're here. But when we die, we just die and we're forever gone. And then I realized that even if I died, time would still go on. Like, there are many people who have died, and time just continues on. No one can stop the time from going because it's something that God created, but we're pretending that God's not real at this point. So, then I die, and the generations just, just go on and on and on and on and on. 
And I just started thinking deeper and deeper. And at one point, I just like, whoa. And I was like, what if we just don't even exist and this is just like a state of mind that I'm in? Like, you know, I just went too deep and I was like, okay, my brain is too puny for this. I can't understand it. And it's really true. And that's why he's coming to. Um, everything that is but God. He has always... He always has been, since before there was an earth, a universe, or even angels. God exists out of time, and since we are within time, there is no way we will ever totally grasp that concept. Not being able to fully understand God is frustrating, but it is ridiculous for us to think that we have the right to limit God to something we are capable of comprehending. I have another verse for you. Psalm eighty-nine, fourteen says, Justice and judgment are the habitation of your throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. So justice and judgment is something that makes God. But mercy and truth is another part of God. And I just have been trying to figure out how those two can go together. Because I feel like God has, in the Old Testament, he mostly was justice and judgment. But yeah, he he did have mercy on the Israelites at times when because of the covenant he made with David and all those things. But then Jesus comes and he's mostly just mercy and truth. He's just gentle and loving. And my, I said something like that to my youth pastor. And he was like, you know, there's that verse that talks about how God never changes. He's always the same. He's always the same today, tomorrow, the yesterday. He's he's always the same. And I'm just trying to, he's ununderstandable to me. I can't comprehend him. I can't comprehend how he can be just like justice which means he would judge those who have sinned and they have to pay the consequences for it but on the other hand he is mercy and if they call out to him and repent of it there that sin he will forgive it's like weird because jesus he endured the wrath of god for us so the wrath of god has been poured out but there is still wrath to be poured out on those who have not accepted it. So anyway, you understand that I can't understand this. Okay, continuation. What a stunted, insignificant, what a stunted, insignificant God that would be. He's saying that if we could comprehend God, like, he would not be, you know... If my mind is the size of a soda can and God is the size of all the oceans, it would be stupid for me to say that he is the only the small amount of water I can scoop into my little can. God is so much bigger, so far beyond our time-encased, air-food-sleep-dependent air food, lives. Please stop here, even if just for a moment, and glorify the eternal God. But you, O Lord, sit enthroned forever. Your renown endures through all generations, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. Psalm 102, 12, 27. Lord, you're amazing. Okay. He knows. I, anyway. God is all-knowing. Isn't this an intimidating thought? Each of us, to some degree, fool our friends and family about who we really are. But it's impossible to do that with God. He knows each of us deeply and specifically. He knows our thoughts before we think them, our actions before we commit them. Whether we are lying down or sitting or walking around, He knows who we are and what we are about. We cannot escape Him, not even if we want to. We, When I grow weary of trying to be faithful to Him and want a break, it doesn't come as a surprise to God. For David, God's knowledge led him to worship. He viewed it as wonderful and meaningful. He wrote in Psalm 139 that even in the darkness he couldn't hide from God. That while he was in his mother's womb, God was there. Ew, I stepped on something. Okay. 
Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing is Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It is sobering to realize that this is the same God who is holy and eternal, the maker of billions of galaxies and thousands of tree species in the rainforest. This is the God who takes the time to know all the little details about each of us. He does not have to know so well, but he chooses to. I'm running out of time. My chapter's still going. Okay, I'm almost done, I think. Oh, apparently I'm not. I still have. Oh, boy. I'll read fast. Ready? God is all-powerful. Colossians 1.16 tells us that everything was created for God. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created for him and, you know, by him and for him. Don't we live instead as though God is created for us to do our bidding, to bless us, and to take care of our loved ones? Psalm 115.3 reveals our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Yet we keep on questioning him. Why did you make me with this body instead of that one? Why are so many people dying of starvation? Why are there so many planets with nothing living on them? Why is my family so messed up? Why don't you make yourself more obvious to the people who need you? The answer to each of these questions is simply this, because he's God. He has more of a right to ask us why so many people are starving. As much as we want God to explain himself to us, his creation, we are in no place to demand that he gives us an account. Daniel 4.35 All the people of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the people of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? Can you worship a God who isn't obligated to explain his actions to you? Could it be your arrogance that makes you think God owes you an explanation? Do you really believe that compared to God, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing, including you? God is fair and just. One definition of justice is reward and or penalty served or deserved. If what we truly deserved were up to us, we would end up with as many different answers as people who responded. But isn't it up to us, mostly because none of us are good? But it isn't up to us, I'm sorry. Mostly because none of us are good. God is the only being who is good, and standards are set by him. Because God hates sin, he has to punish those guilty of sin. Maybe that's not an appealing standard. But to put it bluntly, when you get to your, when you get your own universe, you can make your own standards. When we disagree, let's not assume it's his reasoning that needs correction. It takes a lot for us to comprehend God's total hatred for sin. We make excuses like, yes, I am prideful at times, but everyone struggles with pride. However, God says in Proverbs 8.13, I hate pride and arrogance. Isn't that so wonderful? It's Pride Month. What did God say? I hate pride and arrogance. Proverbs 8.13, look it up yourself. You and I are not allowed to tell him how much he can hate it. He can hate and punish it as severely as his justice demands. God never excuses sin, and he is always consistent with that ethic. Whenever we start to question whether God really hates sin, we have only to think of the cross, where his son was tortured, mocked, and beaten because of our sin. Our sin. No question about it. God hates and must punish sin, and he is totally just and fair in doing so. So I'm going to stop there. The rest of the chapter talks about something I think is really important. That I really like, but I don't have time.
I don't have time. Because, okay, whatever, I'm doing it. Because it's important. So far, we have talked, if you want to, you can speed me up. <laughs> so far, we have talked about the things we can see with our own eyes, things we know about creation, and some of the attributes of God as revealed in the Bible. But many facets, I don't know how to read this word, F-A-C-E-T-S, facets, I don't know, of God expand beyond our comprehension. He cannot be contained in this world, explained by our vocabulary, or grasped by our understanding. Yet, in Revelation 4 and Isaiah 6, we get two distinct glimpses of the heavenly throne room. Let a throne room. Let me paint a bit of a word picture for you. In Revelation, when John recounts his experience of seeing God, it's as though he's scrambling for earthly words to describe the vision he was privileged to see. He describes the one seated on the throne with two gems, Jasper and Carnelian and the area around the throne as a rainbow that looks like an emerald. God, the one on the throne, resembles radiant jewels more than flesh and blood. That's amazing. This sort of poetic, artistic imagery can be difficult for those of us who don't think that way. So imagine the most stunning sunset you've ever seen. Remember the radiant colors splashed across the sky, the way you stopped to gaze at it in awe, and how the words whoa and beautiful seem so lacking. That's a small bit of what John is talking about in Revelation 4 as he attempts to articulate his visions of heaven's throne room. So many sneezes in the background. So many sneezes. John describes flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder coming from God's throne, a throne that must be unlike any other. He writes that before the throne are seven blazing torches and something like a sea of glass that looks like crystal. Using ordinary words, he does his best to describe a heavenly place and a holy God. Most intriguing to me is how John describes those who surround the throne. First, there are 24 elders dressed in white and wearing golden crowns. Next, John describes four six-winged beings with eyes all over their bodies and wings. One has the face of a lion, one of an ox, one of a man, and one of an eagle. I tried to imagine what it would be like if I actually saw one of those creatures out in the woods or down at the beach. I'd probably pass out. It would be terrifying to see a being with the face of a lion and eyes all around and within. As if John's descri description isn't wild and strange enough, he then tells us what the beings are saying. The twenty-four elders cast their gold crowns before the one on the throne, fall on their faces before him, and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. At the same time, the four creatures never stop, day or night, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Just imagine being in that room, surrounded by the elders chanting God's worth and the creatures declaring God's holiness. The prophet Isaiah also had a vision of God in the throne room. By this time, it is more direct picture. I saw the Lord seated on a throne. Whoa, Isaiah saw that and lived? The Israelites hid themselves whenever God passed by their camp because they were too afraid to look at him, even the back of him as he moved away. They were scared they would die if they saw God. But Isaiah looked and saw God. He writes that the bottom of God's robe filled the whole temple and that the seraphim appeared above, God, above him. The seraphim each had six wings, similar to the creatures John described in Revelation. Isaiah says they called out to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Then the foundations shook and smoke filled the house, which is similar to John's description of flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. Isaiah's description, this is the part I was trying to get to, Isaiah's description is less detailed than John's, but Isaiah shares more of his response to being in th the throne room of God. His words reverberate in the wake of the smoky room and shaky foundation. 
Woe is me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of the Lord Almighty. And then one of the seraphim brings Isaiah a piece of burning coal that had been smoldering on the altar. The creature touches Isaiah's mouth with a hot coal and tells him that his guilt is taken away. Both of these descriptions serve a purpose. John's help of John's helps us imagine what the throne room of God looks like, while Isaiah's reminds us what our only response to God should be. May Isaiah's cry become our own. Woe is me. We are people of unclean lips. Perhaps you need to take a deep breath after thinking about the God who made galaxies and caterpillars, the one who sits enthroned eternally praised by beings so fascinated that we were, that they were, they, ah, this is the last part, just hold on, and eternally praised by being so fascinating that were they photographed, it would make a prime time news for weeks. If you are not staggered, go to Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 and read the accounts aloud and slowly, doing your best to imagine what the authors describe. The appropriate way to end this chapter is the same way we began it, by standing in awed silence before a mighty, fearsome God whose tremendous worth becomes even more apparent as we see our own puny selves in comparison. It's true. It's like, whoa, like, is me. A man of unclean lips. A girl of unclean lips. We are so blessed that a God like that will look down on people like us and love us and reach out to us and save us. Glory be to God. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day and a wonderful week. I'll see you next week. Peace out.